I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Since 71 podcast. My name's Stuart, I'm the founder of Since 71 and um, after a little break um, I'm back behind the microphone and um, it gives me great pleasure to say that I'm going to be joined today by Reese Land of uh, Next Generation Sports. Um, although uh, Reese, you te- you probably give us a bit more information but you're, you're expanding from uh, just the sports sector. We are indeed. We've just gone through a little rebrand from Next Gen Sports Solutions to Next Gen Sports and Entertainment which may give away the long-term vision in mind for next gen here but um you know we, we've sort of got to to a point now in our brand where we need to look at other sectors we need to look at other markets women's football i think is um i don't think it's a secret but majority of it's not sustainable so we need to look at can we go into men's football can we go into different sectors in other markets so yeah we've just gone into a rebrand of next gen sports and entertainment yeah, we've had, you've had a lot of success, and um, if there are gaps in other markets and, and good work that you can do to support clients, it uh, it seems a bit of a no brainer. But um, I also want to say thank you for your uh, sort of flexibility and patience. This is the the third time third time lucky that we've had for actually recording. Um, the first occasion, uh, I think my little one fell ill, um, as as you would with going to nursery every day. Um, so she's off nursery, so we had to cancel that one. That was a negative PCR test, and we had the the same last week as well. Again, thankfully, uh, a negative PCR test. But it's uh, yeah, it's always fell on the, the days that we plan to record. So uh, thank you for being uh, being flexible. It's uh, very much appreciated because I've been uh, very keen to get you on because uh, I love talking to you. I could talk. We've already uh, spent about just over an hour chatting just prior to recording. So. Uh, yeah, this I normally set out with an, for an episode to be at least twenty five minutes, and I think I'm probably going to have to work hard to try and keep us down to under an hour, to be honest. So uh, maybe the fact that I've got to pick up my little one from nursery uh, in an hour and fifteen minutes might be uh, might be quite handy at kind of keeping us uh, on track a little bit. But um, I hope you're doing well. And um, how, how's your summer been? Um, it's been good, thank you. Uh, like I said, thank you for having me on. So it's um, we're we're all safe, we're all healthy, and I think that's the main thing. But yeah, the summer's been good. It's been busy. Um, it's always is for us. You know, we we represent over eighty players across Europe, so it's always busy. But um, you know, I I was sort of in isolation two weeks ago for ten days, which which didn't help. I wish I'd have been in isolation in March or April. But you know, if if we're getting a transfer window, we have to move. So yeah, it's it's been busy, but we've we've got through it. Cool. Well, I'm glad that you're uh, you're over the over the other side of it now, and uh, I'm feeling better and looking well. Um, you're certainly looking uh, healthier than I am after uh, a year and a half with uh, with a little one and COVID and um, yeah, I'm the, the, there's a, you can't see it obviously on the, the podcast, but the, my beard is getting greyer and greyer with every beard trim. It seems to be uh, a larger patch, but um, I'll, I'll embrace the Schofield. I don't mind that too much. I'll uh, I'll live with that. I'm kind of jealous of your beard, Stuart. So we'll we'll not moan too much. Oh, well, that's appreciated. It's appreciated. Um, so. I'd like to know a little bit more about your background in football. Um, what got you into it? Was is it was it from the playing side of things? Have you always wanted to be more of a business side and you saw an opportunity? How, how did it work for you? So I got into football quite young. Um, I was at Rotherham United, part of their Academy or Centre of Excellence, as it was known at the time. Uh, I was there for 11 years, so I sort of got on the fringe of, of the first team. I was always obsessed with the business side. From one of my earliest memories watching TV is watching the likes of The Apprentice it's, and, and Dragon's Den. It's it's something that's always fascinated me. And player contracts, whenever there's been speculation of transfers, 
I wasn't bothered about how much clubs were paying. I'm more bothered about how much players were earning and the image rights and then the bonus structure and how a move would look and how it would facilitate. I've always been obsessed with that. And even when I was still playing, I was more obsessed with the business side half the time than I was with, with the S&C and then the analysis of, uh, of my own career. So yeah, I've been in, I've been involved in football quite a while. And I'd worked with quite a few agents. So I'd worked with two agents, one, which now works for me as, as head of football at Next Gen Sports and Entertainment. And the experience with one of the agents was um, interesting, shall we say, which, again, because I was obsessed with the business side, I was sort of looking at what he was doing whilst he was representing me and, and the way he was managing my career. And I kind of sort of wanted to self-manage myself and then realise it's near impossible to do that whilst, whilst just still playing. And... The, the the contents of um, of football agencies they sort of control footballers, which I felt a little bit like that at the time. Bear in mind we're going back quite a few years. But, <laughs> yeah. when, when people think of football agents, I think typically they think of you know we stand at the side of a pitch in a camel hair coat and a cigar and we part of the mafia. And in reality, it's it's the complete opposite. But at times it can feel like you're part of this organisation that controls you, and it's like, right, Reese, next season you're playing here, and you're going to earn this, and this is what time you you feel you feel kind of controlled, and I didn't like that, so I wanted. So you, to... you thought you could do? You thought I, I can do that better? I can see the problems, and yeah. I can offer something slightly unique. It's like a like a knowledgeable and um and, and that caring side. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I went to play over in in Malton for. Um, uh, not as long as I wished, but um, due to events that happened over in Malta, but yeah, just little things such as like, so my old agent facilitated the transfer for me to go over to Malta, never really did any onboarding, never really told me what language I speak in Malta. I know I probably should notice myself, I can always jump on Google, but it's the aftercare and I felt sometimes as the deal was done, right, okay, we'll speak to you now in 12 months time when your contract's up for renewal. And it's the, the old aftercare. And I think everything that we offer at Next Gen Sports and Entertainment now is everything that I needed and wanted whilst I was playing football. And I think that's probably one of the the main areas in, in why we've grown so quickly and why we've become so dominant and, and, and so big in such a short space of time due to we're offering what players need and want. Um, um, you've only got to look at me. You can probably tell I'm one of the youngest agents still globally in football, in men's and women's football. Um, but I see that as an advantage because I'm more, I'm closer to football than what an agent at 60 years old, that's part of this old um, sort of philosophy of football agencies. So yeah, that's, that's sort of where the idea of next gen sports and entertainment or next gen sports solutions at the time came from. It came from me wanting to manage my own career. I then moved over to, to be represented by Luke Moran, who is now my head of football at, at next gen. Um, and the the whole operation was completely different. But because I was obsessed with business, I still wanted that element of control within my own career. Um, and we, we just grew from there. But I sustained an injury over in Malta, which is, is why my, my experience over there got cut short. And I was down at the Arsenal versus Chelsea match at Colney. And uh, yeah, Colney, sorry, at, at the Arsenal training ground. And Arsene Menger walks in, into the room where where all the fam, uh, families and all the, the, the parents and the, the spectators for the under-21s match. And I would say that anyone that knows me knows I'm quite an opportunist. Uh, opportunist. So if I see an opportunity, if I see Arsene Wenger there stood on his own, I have to go and talk to him and see what, what knowledge and what tips I can learn from him in the space of two minutes. That's my challenge. Um, and I remember a three or four minute conversation with him. And the only thing I remember from that three or four minute conversation is him pointing at the women's team that was training on the far pitch and saying that'll be the next big thing. And as I as I drove out of the Arsenal training ground, I then phoned Luke while I was driving back up to Leeds and said, "Forget every business plan that we put together for next gen, tear it up because we're going into women's football." And I know Luke questioned me at the time. I didn't know any female footballers at the time. I knew absolutely nothing. But I think when Arsene Wenger is telling you something, you're sometimes maybe a little bit stupid not to take that advice. Yeah, yeah, take take notice and. Um... 
he's not been proved wrong with that to be honest and like you say you, you see that gap in the market you think actually i can i can do something and i can do something well we're not just looking to exploit it you're looking you i one of the reasons that i'm i think you guys are, are doing such a good job and are being so successful is that you see the opportunities to make a positive change not just how can we make some money and buy a bigger car or a second house absolutely if, if i was being a football agent for money I would have gone into men's football. Um, we've, we've become sustainable, which for me, I love challenges. And a challenge for me were, everyone told me there's no money in women's football. Brilliant. That's my challenge. Let me make a sustainable business from an industry where there's no money. That for me excites me more than going and trying to find my next Jamie Vardy in men's football. Um, but no, I, I think you're right in terms of, in terms of a growth is, that's sort of where it stemmed from. But, yeah, it's it's been an interesting four years. It's been challenging, but it's been an exciting four years. Yeah, well, you, you you're doing really well. So, how, how many? Who, who was your first player that you signed? Ellie Mason was the first one. Um, my first two clients was Ellie Mason and Sean Rogers. Yeah, which which have both become professional footballers. Uh, both at the time were about eighteen, nineteen years old, um, maybe even younger, maybe even seventeen. But we've got a philosophy where we don't sign any players until we've seen them. And it's something that we try to stick to, which has been hard during COVID. Um, yeah. But it's a philosophy that we try to stick to. So if we're selling a player to a club, I can describe a player because I've seen the player with my own eyes. And I watched Ellie and I watched Sean. And I reckon I've got an eye for talent because over 80% of my clients have turned professional with me. So, you know, in the game, both of them stood out. And within, I think, three or four days after watching them, we we got in touch with them and arranged a meeting. And yeah, they were the first two clients that we signed. Yeah. And um, how many do you currently have on the books now? We now have eight, uh, just over 80, I think, including uh, several managers that we represent, several head coaches, um, players. We, we operate in England, Scotland, Wales, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, uh, Belgium. We've got a player. We've got a player in New Zealand. We've got a couple in America. So yeah, we're aiming for global domination. Yeah, well, it's only getting bigger and bigger. And um, yeah, don't be surprised if uh, my CV comes your way in a couple of years. Um, yeah, I think you're doing a, a fantastic job. So I guess people are probably interested in, from the practical perspective, what the, the what services you can offer. So so what does NextGen do for its clients? Because we, we might have some uh, female footballers that listen to this and think, actually, do you know what? I could, I've been interested about representation, but, but what, what does it mean for them? We, we've, we've got another theory at NextGen, which is we, we've got on our wall and it's closed mouths don't get fed. And I think that goes for any walk of life. If you want something, you've got to speak out. And I think if you're a footballer, what you need as a footballer is you need someone that's constantly going to be shouting your name. If if you're a striker and you're a top goal scorer in the league, you need, you need that exposure. Otherwise, you're not going to get a move. You're not going to get more money. You're not going to get a better deal. You're not going to get the commercial and the endorsement opportunities. So you need that promotion. And I think that's that's the the model that we look at at NextGen. So we're not just here negotiating contracts. That is what we do, but we're not just here during a transfer window. We constantly, we speak to clubs, we speak to every single club. We aim to do it once every 10 days. So we know firsthand what every club's looking for in every transfer window. And nine times out of 10, we know about three months before the transfer window even starts. So if you're represented by us, you've got, you're paying for that head start. So we can, we can, we, we sort of play chess and, and that's, that's probably the easiest way to describe it, where we've got the players, we've got the clubs, we know the club's requirements, we know the club's budgets. And then we look at the clients that we represent and we look, right, okay, who's this, who, who have we got that's a good fit? Um, but we take care of absolutely everything that players need and want. So that could be contract and transfer negotiation, whether it's a loan deal or a transfer or a new contract. We do all the, the commercial and the endorsement, whether it's a boot deal. Uh, we do all the tax advice, all the legal advice. So if a player's moving overseas um, and it's different tax regulations, we, we make sure that contracts are tax efficient and tax effective for them. Um, whether a player's wanting a new car, we, you know, we, we've got partnerships with Mini Cooper, Mercedes. We, we've got all the brands so that we can, we can assist players. My job is to make our clients' lives as easy as possible so that they can concentrate on football. Yeah, so that, that's on and off the pitch, isn't it? I know you, your phone isn't on, your phone isn't just a, a nine to five thing. Your your phone is uh, 
it's twenty four seven for player welfare, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And we we monitor every single call that gets made in the office. And um, again, we we try and stick to we don't leave the office until there's fifty calls a day made. Whether that's to our clients, whether that's to our clients' families, whether that's to football clubs, we aim to hit at least fifty calls a day from our office, just so that we know firsthand if one of our players are struggling, we need to know about it. Can we? You know, we've got a full time psychologist that works for us. Can can we help our player with mental, with with anxiety or depression? If we invest back into the player, they can then perform better on the pitch, which then gets them a better move, which then earns us the money. So again, if we're reinvesting pretty much every single piece of of money that we get, we're reinvesting back into our clients. Yeah, everyone benefits at the end of the day. And so you've obviously touched on um, players' welfare and if they're having sort of problems having a negative experience. Is that something that's probably more common than most football fans will realise? Absolutely, absolutely. And during COVID, we our we've had to take on a separate uh, a second psychologist. We 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 work with Sports Chaplaincy UK, which work with our clients pretty much daily. I don't think a lot of people realise how how prominent mental health is, especially during COVID. I think it's it's probably doubled our output in terms of what our psychologist is doing. Um. But I, I put a tweet out this morning saying footballers want three things. They want to be loved, they want to be respected, they want to be appreciated. When I say they want to be loved, you know, they don't want, they don't need an arm around them every single day. It might just be a, a case of a manager saying good morning. Yeah. But if a player is getting ignored for three or four days, the player then starts phoning me saying, Reese, I don't know if I've done something here to annoy the manager, but they've not spoken to me for four days. And then it starts to cause doubt. And then that leads to players overthinking. And then it leads to other things such as anxiety and depression, and um, and that's going to impact performance on the pitch. And then you can't you can't perform your job, and you're st- you're probably stuck in a in a cycle. Exactly. And the disappointing thing on that is the fact that um, that has to be put onto our shoulders. I would like to see the clubs doing more in terms of mental health, and um, whether it's working with a chaplain or working with a, a sports psychologist or anyone to do with the mental health side of football, because the output that they are getting from their own players, they're probably only getting players working at an optimum of 60% or 70%. But if you have a sports psychologist that can work with players and make sure that on every single area they are covered and they are looked after, they're then going to get the player working at an 80 or 90% capacity. But uh, I don't know. It's a little bit disappointing in women's football, the fact that they, they tend to invest in more mannequins and more cones and more footballs instead of investing in things that players actually need which is looking after yeah definitely and 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 talking about looking after players one thing that i'm really interested in uh, we saw it early on in the summer when you've got football clubs that are releasing double figures of players like how does like how does that work in reality for a lot of the players it's an absolute joke is is the is is the honest answer that you're going to get from me because Who's taking the blame for signing 20 players and then releasing 15 in 12 months' time? Is it the manager yeah. that's recruiting wrong? Is it the fact that the, play, the club can't pull in better players, so they're signing players that they don't really want? Who, who's taking the blame? Because if that happened in men's football, people would be asking questions on the manager or the head of recruitment. You know, it's, it's not sustainable to have such a high turnover, not just in football, but in business as well. You know, If, if we've got eight, play, eight staff that work for me full-time and every 12 months I'm, I'm getting rid of six of them, Either I'm doing something wrong as a boss or our recruitment is wrong. But someone has to be held accountable for that. But the negative effect on that is we, uh, you know, this really hit home for me during the second lockdown when, was it the second lockdown when um, players start to get released by, by the contracts coming up? And play, I had one player on the phone to me saying that they wanted to end it all. Now read into that what you want to read into that. No player should ever feel like that because of football. Yeah, well, that is a brutal reality. But what what disappoints me more than anything is some players are getting released by text, some players are getting released by email, and when they are saying to the manager, "Look, just can I just have ten minutes with you on Zoom? Just give me some feedback so I know what I can go away and work on." I'm too busy for that. Sorry. It just goes to show that the that players are still expendable. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I'm players are commodities, and I understand that. But whilst that commodity is on your books as an asset, you have to look after them. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and 
it, it, it's the same for anyone that works for me full time. You know, if they're struggling, it falls on my shoulders. My job as an employer to look after them. And I feel like some football clubs forget that they are employers. Well, back, college for me was uh, well over 15 years ago. But I think I did um, five different courses over my time there. And every single one of them had Maslow's hierarchy of needs in there. And you think that if everyone knows it, why aren't people putting as much importance on it than it than it really deserves it you can't what was it i think heston blumenthal once had this uh, expression where it's like if you give a chef a microwave he's not he's not going to be allowed to cook he's not going to thrive in a kitchen but if you give them ingredients if you give them tools to do their job they, they can thrive and they can create and they can invent food and it's it's, it's the same in any industry I, I don't care what your job is if you just keep people in the dark what is it i think it this uh, one I've heard it's um, yeah you can't pe- treat people like mushrooms just feed them shit and leave them in the dark and expecting them to, expect them to grow they're not people aren't mushrooms ultimately exactly exactly and I think that's so important in terms of why players need someone like us you know every every agent is different you know some agents are, are one man bands and standalone companies where they they do only turn up in transfer windows because that's the capacity that they run at in their organisation. We're a management company. I hate people when, when they call me an agency. Um, I'd hate being called a football agent because I, I don't just negotiate contracts. I look after players' lives and careers. And I think that's so important in terms of in terms of why we are different from anyone else. Yeah, and I like to think you've probably... Uh, probably, fre- probably your clients are probably more considered friends to yourself, aren't they? I think my closest friends are my clients. Um, and... Uh, I, in, on, between me and you, Stuart, I think I've got the best job in the world where if if I can get invested in someone's career, whether that's emotionally invested or physically invested or, or financially invested, I will move mountains and I will not sleep. You know, the, the, the hours are not only me, but, but everyone that works for me. You know, during a transfer window, we're operational 24-7. Because of the different territories that we operate in, we have to be operational 24-7. But if I've just drove back from London and I get home at half 12 at night, if I'm invested in your career, you have got my word that I will put my laptop on at midnight and send an email for you to try and get you that move because I will move mountains. Yeah, it, it doesn't take two minutes to see, even just for me, it's, it's when you just acknowledge your text. Say, I'm really sorry I've not replied to your email. I'll be getting back to you tomorrow. And you're like, thank you. So we'll see one of the things that's probably changed quite a lot with regards to transfers over the last couple of years will be Brexit coming in. What impact has, has Brexit had on you, especially where you have players operating in various different countries in the uh, in Europe and further afield? Every player that contacts us from overseas, whether it's in Europe or, or in America or New Zealand or wherever, 90% of them all say the same thing. I want to come and play in the Super League. Now, it's made it harder to bring them sort of players over because of the stricter work permits, um, you know, the, the point system in terms of getting visas. In terms of driving football forward in England, I actually think it's had a positive effect because it's, it's given more opportunities to the English players. Um, from my experience, it's caused me no problems with Brexit. I know it's caused other people some issues, but for me personally, it's caused me next to no issues so personally I think it's a good I think it's positive a positive impact on women's football so obviously with that we're talking about a lot of foreign players that are wanting to come and play in England um, and most namely the uh, women's super league I've got sort of fears that this will push young British talent down the leagues where they might find it harder to earn living wage um thus impacting their, their football and development. You probably, like me, speak to a lot of football players that crave being able to be on a full-time contract where they can play football five, six times a week and they know that they, their development, the, the world is, is their oyster with it. But um, what sort of impact do you see ha- happening in the long term with regards to foreign players coming in and, and will it be an overall positive, negative? And, and sh- does that create opportunities for the championship and the national league to for want of a better word exploit i think so i think so um but just to summarize sort of a question there i think if you're good enough you're still going to make it if you're good enough to play in the super league you'll still play in the super league 
if you're only good enough to play in the championship or only good enough to play in the national league that is where you will play you you will find your level and if if we've got someone that's flying in the championship you know i, I i'm confident to say that i will get them into the super league but i can only do that if players perform and i don't want i don't want players to start using it as an excuse for there's an influx of European players coming over because that happens in the men's Premier League. But if you're good enough in the Championship, then you're going to get a move. And I guess so. That's probably a really good point. Then, so does that? Are there occasions where you've got a kind of dish out a bit of tough love to your clients? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, we we butt heads with quite a few of our clients because um, you know, sometimes clients think that the level that they are at compared to where they should be at maybe maybe different but like i say every agent manages careers differently i would rather have a player if i had got a striker i would rather than be in the championship as a top yeah. scorer than sat on the bench every week in the wsl because in 12 months time the wsl player squad sorry the wsl team is probably going to release my client if i've got a player that's if i've got a striker in the championship as a top goal scorer that gives me leverage to go to a wsl club and say we're coming but we're playing yeah so we we do butt heads but look at my track record over 80 percent of my players have turned professional with me so if players trust me i will make them a professional footballer as long as they are good enough then i will make them a professional footballer yeah and it's uh yeah it's it's fantastic um maybe i should get you to be uh be my agent and you can uh, start getting me to make some money through since 71 and see who wants to pay me to do this yeah. maybe if there's anyone out there that wants to start sponsoring the podcast and uh covering some costs with that then fantastic and hey maybe i'll be able to pay my guests reese as well absolutely yeah so yeah 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 since 71 mug will be or t-shirt will be in the post come christmas hopefully an interview fee <laughs> Excellent. Well, you, you're right. You're from Yorkshire, so you're obviously uh, a big tea drinker. Surely you'd be disowned, don't you? Wouldn't otherwise. Right, I drink anything. I'm from Yorkshire. Well, yeah, exactly. If it's uh, what is it, wet and brown, that's what they, exactly. they say at work. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so going back to sort of like uh, what really intrigue interests me is the the third tier of women's football. I'm I find it fascinating. That's where my passion lies. That's where for me, I find I think that third tier is the most exciting and most competitive tier in the women's football pyramid. Um, and we've seen a little bit of a change in how a lot of the clubs are operating there. We're seeing a lot of championship players dropping down to the National League, which is obviously um, amateur. So from a practical perspective, have you got players that are within the championship that a torn to whether to go down to that national league level because of the lack of finances or do, you, do players tend to look at that and think, do you know what? That's on the rise. I, I, I want a piece of that action because maybe they, they do already have their, their main income. Yeah, absolutely. I think I must've had 20 players this summer that have all asked me about Southampton and Ipswich. Um, sort of 18 months ago, it was the same with Nottingham Forest. They sort of went where they, they, they invested quite heavily into their women's team. You know, they, they employed Andy Cook on a full time, full time role, which, which is fantastic. But I think the, again, looking at this from a business point of view, I think clubs just need to. There needs to be method behind going full time in the national league because if you're playing, if you're putting you know, ten of your players on full time contracts, and you've got no one coming to watch matches, who's paying it? Who who's? It needs to be sustainable. Otherwise, there's no growth. Um, and that's my only concern. But when you look at what Southampton are doing, I think it looks like an unbelievable project. And you look at the output, especially on social media from Ipswich, it's probably been one of the best in the country these last few weeks. Um, so you've got to remember, but you can't, I don't want to come across as too critical on play, on teams that are going full-time or putting players on professional contracts. I'm not quite sure how them professional contracts look. But, but we, we've, we've all seen examples where teams have gone bust. So as you say, it's that sustainability that's a key factor absolutely nothing can grow without being sustainable first and my concern is if Ipswich and Southampton are in the same league and then BFA BFA like to make crazy decisions sometimes so they might say only one team's coming up and then you've got Bridgewater that are probably going to be up there you've got um, Ipswich you've got Southampton you've got Cardiff that are going to want to challenge a little team called Portsmouth in my neck of the woods doing all right as well. Portsmouth, another one. Um, you need to look and you think if there's only one team that goes up, 
can Ipswich or Southampton be sustainable two years full time in the National League? And that yeah. that's my only um, doubt. But it needs people coming in through the door. But eighteen months ago, before COVID, I did an interview and and I said, in my opinion, the National League was the best league out of all three. Yeah, and I've been kind of over the last couple of weeks thinking about how the National League might look going forward in five years' time. And if money does start dropping down there, then that's going to lead to another revamp of the leagues because if you've got clubs like Portsmouth can afford to do an overnight trip if they're going to play Middlesbrough or Newcastle, then actually you're going to be tearing up that region element to it. Absolutely. And then that's going to have to lead to a, a massive revamp. And while that might seem like a bit of a ball ache for the people running the National League, fundamentally that's got to be the role and responsibility of the new National League board to obtain funding. I still think it's absolutely criminal. I know a lot gets said about the the FA Cup and the prize money there, but if a team, Southampton, win the National League, they get no money at all for it. There's no incentive to win that league. And, and that's when it becomes unsustainable because you can't pay players. You because you've got no but you're relying wholly on gate receipts and merchandise which like from from I don't know the ins and outs at Portsmouth but it's my local side so it's the team that I tend to go and see the most especially while I've got a little one and I I can't afford to go too farther afield uh, for taking a whole day away but you think well actually they're they're playing in Haven and Waterlooville stadium which has got a, a 3G surface on it beautiful surface um the match days there are fantastic but that's going to come at a cost as well so what they're making, at the, I'd be interested to know if they're making much at the gates at all when it comes to players. And one of the, the we've got a bit of work coming up on since seventy one coming out over the next couple of months with regards to sort of player sponsorship. I think now more than ever, that is something that's going to be really, really important at that tier three, four, and and, and further down. Um, I think there need we need to get to a point where as many of these players as possible aren't having to pay subs to participate in the sport. And like, I've been speaking to a few people and I, I managed to get a, a player sponsored recently because I was speaking to someone that they've got a season ticket at the uh, football team that they, um, that, that football team that this relates to. And I said, well, did you realise that for an extra £75, you could sponsor a player, in which case you get two season tickets back from it? They went, hang on a minute. Well, I pay X amount a week to go to these, but oh, hang on a minute, because if it was £200, it's... On the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. Like I was a season ticket holder at Old Trafford for a little while, and I'm spending hundred quid just per trip up there. Mm. That's two games, and you think you can go and see this other club that are relatable. Um, you feel like you get something back. You develop. You can sometimes develop a um, a familiar relationship with that player. Um, I know some that uh, sort of. Aren't, the friends of the family and it's Christmas cards and birthday cards and others that it's um they just make sure they come over and say hello at the end of games um we've um we're sponsoring potentially three players this year with since 71 hopefully we'll be able to start announcing soon and um a little bit well if you really do your research you'll you'll know who one of them is uh, just on the space people but but she scored four goals yesterday and I'm like oh that's fantastic and it's a bit weird. I've done nothing apart from give them a bit of money so they don't have to pay subs. But you do get a little bit of pride out of that. And then because you get your ticket out of it, um, we, we spoke after the game. So it's really nice. So it, it makes it feel personal. And it actually, it, it's, it's great for the players. Um, some of the conversations I've been having with the players uh, for, for the things we're going to be putting out is the fact that they find it really humbling that not only someone will pay money to come and see a whole team, but they'll invest in them as a person. And it's, you, like one of them said, you, you can't put a price on the faith that having someone that's willing to put money in on you personally that gives you that extra couple of percent at a game because it, it improves your worth. And if I can do something for that, then fantastic. If I can help share that story for other people so they realise that they can do it, then it's kind of a no, kind of a no brainer. And as I say, if you're paying football, let's face it, football tickets are quite cheap. So if you're paying, you could be paying. I actually looked at Coventry United um, just before we got chatting. The sponsor theirs is five hundred pounds. It's that a little bit more expensive, but actually, in the grand scheme of things, that's relative to the person. So 
Um, a 17 year old female football fan probably can't do that. Um, but actually, if you own your own business or you've got a little bit of disposable income, actually, it, it, it's something that you can do. You get more back, you get the more exposure. And that level of investment and inclusion of fans, I think it's, it's just so vital. And like you, you're, I don't know, do your players talk about sort of like player sponsorship and how they do from their perspective? They do. It's something that we get asked every single day as well, especially this time of year where players are saying, can, can we sponsor them? BFA don't allow us to. Um, they think that we're taking backhanders from football clubs, I think. Uh, but there was a famous case with West Ham and, and a sports management company a couple of years ago, which which made the FA come in and say, right, no management companies, no agents can sponsor players. And that is something that we would give out to every single client if we could. Yeah. Because like you just said, it takes so much pressure away and it's one less stress for the player to have to worry about. And it's same for boot sponsors as well. The amount of girls are, you know, boots are so expensive. And any, any, any player that can get a boot sponsor, it's another stress that can be taken away from them so they can just concentrate on playing. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that we uh, we sort of look forward to pushing, and um, it's yeah, I think it's so important to a lot of these players. Um, what, from from your insider knowledge, then obviously there, there's a push to turn the championship into uh, a professional league, but we're also seeing players being put on full time contracts as well. Is it semantics, is, or is there a difference between a player that's on a full time contract and a professional contract? For example, does that mean that if you're on a professional contract that you're paid through the time that you're on the pitch? So, for example, you might only be t- paid 10 hours um, ten hours a week, but that's not enough to then earn yourself a living. So, actually, you're not a professional professional in a sense of most people would realise with men's football. Um, so, how does it, how is it working in the championship at the moment, to your knowledge? There's, there's one key, key phrase in this, and that is national living wage. So what a lot of clubs will do is, right, we train 14 hours. So you're in five days, so it has to be full-time because you probably can't go and work elsewhere because there's not enough time for you to do so. So we're going to do 14 hours times national living wage. So a girl at 17, 18 might be coming away with five or £600 a month. Now you look at that and you think, okay, can the girl go and rent a house? No. Can she go and get a mortgage? No. Is she earning enough to go and get a car on finance? Probably not. So you look and you think, but this player's a professional full-time footballer. So I think the key phrase in that is national living wage and a lot of clubs yeah. stick to to the national living wage. But again, it's leverage. If a player's just had a good season, we've got more leverage to go in and get a better deal for them. Now, if a player's dropping down the leagues, depending on the profile of a player, you, you, might, you might still have a little bit of leverage, but that's why it's so important for any stress to be taken away from players so that they can go and concentrate on football and really put 100% into it. So but when it is time to go in for contract renewals, we can go and get them the best possible deal. I mean, even a good deal might not be life-changing money, but it's better than what it would be coming off a, an average season. Yeah, because I guess one of the one of the elements of uh, players' lives that interests me as well is just accommodation. You touched on uh, a young player under the age of 21 that might be moving. They might live in London, for example, but get offered a, a contract up in the, the north of England. So then... Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how the residential system tends to work and what a lot of clubs do to to house their players? And the, I know that you've got some sort of frustrations um, about how they manage that as well. Uh, yeah, um, I've seen some of the players' houses that clubs offer players. Um, and I think the less that we say about that, probably the better. Um, in terms of accommodation, that's that's one area that a lot of clubs have saved money on by not offering player accommodation. I think that's the way that they've they've reduced their expenditure post-COVID. Uh, but that could that could look in so many different ways. It might be might be a one-off signing off fee. So let's ju- just using round figures, a club might give a player three thousand. So it might cover the deposit and then four months rent. Or they may say, We've got a house, but you pay us the rent. And then the club can obviously use that asset to 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 gain money. And I think when I've seen some of the players' houses compared to how much rent they want to charge their own players, I think they're definitely making a profit on them. Um, or it may be a case of um, go and find your own house, send us the the invoice every month and we'll cover 50% of, 
of a set of of a rent. So it could look in different in different ways, but again, it depends on leverage that we've got during the negotiation. If a player's had a good season, we've got more power in negotiation. A club's more likely to give a player accommodation coming off a good season because it's not a risky investment for the club. Yeah, and it, it just seems a real. It, it does seem that there's a little bit of taking advantage of there that you think, hang on a minute, we're going to get you in, but. We, instead of paying you £500 a month, we're going to charge you £600 a month to come and live in our accommodation. But you haven't got a sofa. Um, you've got, you'd be lucky to get... So, well, it's, I guess it's, um, at best, some of them are, are student digs, are they? Um, yeah, you can say that. I mean, I, I looked at one a few months ago and it was no bigger than a hamster cage. Um, it, it had next. It had literally a bed in it. And then the bed was... It's, it's like a, a student sort of uh, studio. A whole, a whole of residence, yeah, really, yeah. It's a, it's a bedroom with an ensuite. Yeah, it? you can lay in your bed, you can touch your, you can touch your kitchen taps and you know, you've got one foot in the shower while you're still laid in bed. And it's, These are not professional footballers. This is not, you know, we're not asking for three million pound houses in, in Surrey. Yeah. We're just asking for an adequate house. You know? And and I think the key question is how many, how many club officials will be happy for their son or daughter to go and live in this accommodation? And I think if they answer truthfully... Not a lot of them would, but you can't really blame the, the, the club and the staff too much because if that's the only money that they are being given to go and buy a house or go and source a house, they can only get a house what they what their budget allows them to. So, yeah. Well, hopefully, this is again just one of these other things that we will start to see change, and I think it's just really important for our listeners and, and fans of women's football to know that all the time that you're seeing players on Sky Sports, big singing, big dancing, TV con- uh, contract. But actually, once they're back home, it's nothing like the men's game. Not even it's it's a million miles away from, and and that's something that does still need to change. And that's why it's so important that players are are supported, which um which kind of segue segues nicely into the sort of the next part that I wanted to speak to you about, which was sort of player welfare. And I know that Naomi Osaka, um, she's one of the players that's kind of really brought mental health into the the forefront. Um, recently and um, her stance on actually taking a bit of time for herself do, do you find are you like I don't know if you're like me that I, I can't comprehend how and why these sports stars are getting criticized for this you've got your Piers Morgans and, and the like coming out saying oh they're weak well no no it's, it's quite the opposite it shows that self-awareness that you can look after yourself and, and be the best person you are because you're probably facing some sort of adversity to get to where you are. And it, it's crazy. Absolutely. And, you know, we touched on it earlier in terms of clubs do not look after players. That responsibility falls on my shoulders and my company's shoulders and, and similar company's shoulders. But, yeah, the FA have just decided to go out and sell the broadcasting rights. So if, if players are not getting the correct mental health support and the correct psychology assistance and support... And then all of a sudden, in two weeks' time, we're going to be thrown live on Sky Sports at 17 years old in front of potentially 10 million people. They are going to become subject to social media abuse. That is, you know, we, we can't get away from that fact. You know, you look at um, you look at the Premier League footballers, you can, you can go and have a 10 out of 10 match, an unbelievable match, and you'll still get one person on Twitter saying, yeah, but remember that one bad pass that you played? You're not good enough, you should be dropped next week, and you've just had an unbelievable performance. So clubs have to make sure that players are protected, especially now we're going into this new age of the broadcasting. And, and we, when you have that, we're going to lose something that is the the heartbeat of women's football. And it's that, that what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's attainable. The, the players are reachable. They all mostly run their own social media. And they'll lose that because they will just they'll just turn it off, and they will become sort of robots, and you you'll lose that interaction and lose the heartbeat of what is women's football. You're absolutely right. You will lose that um, accessibility within within accessibility. That's the word. Within within eighteen months, you will lose it in the top three divisions, in my opinion. Um, in terms of social media, you've just mentioned we run I think thirty five Twitter accounts for our clients, and when I say run them. They do not even have the password for their own Twitter accounts. That is to the point where they've detached away. They've... And is that often their choice or is it a, two, a, a two-way conversation? What's best for them? It's always a two-way conversation, but we always allow the player to instigate that conversation. We we would never say to a player, right, we're taking over your Twitter. You know, we, we're we not that company. But if a, if a player is saying, 
recent you know i'm sick of seeing these now like i'm constantly getting tagged into in tweets and um we say right okay look take two weeks away and you can guarantee after a player's taken two weeks away they then come back and say i've not even missed it like i've, I've not even, I've, not, I've not missed anything on twitter like i felt revitalized and then we say right okay but we still need to build your profile how about we take over for a month see what we can do in terms of engagement see if we can I would rather read the tweet, you know, criticizing one of my players than my player read that tweet. Yeah. But it still hurts me, but it doesn't affect me as much as what it would hurt them. Yeah. Um, but like I said, we, we've even got that now for three managers. Again, they do not even have access to their own social media. They have a private account, which no one knows about other than close friends and family. Their professional accounts, which which is the ones that people see on Twitter, are the ones that we run. And even the messages that they receive from fans and from journalists is um, somewhat disgraceful. We- yeah, it's. Um, I, I know that when when we're writing things, every now and again, because I've got my my writers are all volunteers ultimately, so that they can have quite strong opinions, and quite often they've got links to a particular club. They they've watched them, so they've got that that extra little bit of passion. And and I, I even this morning there's a, there was a little tagline put on something that was criticising the FA, and I. I kind of said, well, actually, how can I? Can you let me reword this? And what do you think about if I say, well, what's the FA's challenge to continue to grow the game? And because actually, I think people people forget the good things people do. Like, I'd be the FA's biggest critic on on certain things, but actually, other things they do fantastically well. My I, through my youth football coaching, I see so many fantastic employees and, and coaches within the football association that it's really unfair to kind of target them all with that sort of like same brush where you've obviously got a small number of people that are making poor decisions. And then from the other perspective, it's sometimes there's, there's, there's method behind the madness, but th- for some reason they won't be transparent and explain that. No, you're, it, you're absolutely right. And again, it's that accessibility. What I, I, what I would like to see more from the FA is, is more of a spokesperson for women's football, come out and interact with journalists, come out and, and have a voice because we need to sell women's football. If if we don't have anyone selling it, no one's going to watch it. No one's going to come and watch it on, on live in a stadium. We need again. We, we revert back to the, the 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 phrase that I mentioned right at the very start: "Closed mouths don't get fed." And I think that's something that I'm quite critical of the FA on. I would like to see more people from the women's departments come out and interact with people. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah, it makes a makes a big big difference. But um, so I just wanted to know a little bit more about sort of like some of your clients and kind of like they might what they're sort of we talked about promoting players. So let, let's use this as a, as an opportunity to um, obviously there's a whole other episode of listing through sort of all eighty. Like, are there any particular players at the moment that people might not be aware of? You think what, what, watch out for them. Like, and maybe I'll start you off with uh, a certain striker that's uh, recently signed for Coventry United, Rio Hardy. <laughs> um, look, I think I think people should know who Rio Hardy is now. I think I think the groundwork's being done. I think the next twelve months you'll see you'll see why I've been so vocal on how good Rio Hardy is. Um, about eighteen months ago, before COVID started, me and Rio sat in and Steph sat in a hotel lobby inside. So Steph's her sister for our listeners that might not yeah, be aware. Steph's her sister who is still over at Apollon. Um and we sat in a hotel lobby in Cyprus and, and looked at all the options. Rio had options in the Super League. She had options in Europe. But it just wasn't the right time to bring her back. And we looked at that. And now looking back in hindsight, if we would have brought Rio back 18 months ago, and I'll take responsibility for this, um, maybe we might have seen Rio in the Olympic squad, even potentially in the Euros, because this is the level of play that we're speaking about here. Um, but it's an exciting 12 months. And... It's going to be a transition for Rio back. She's not played in England for a few years, so I hope people don't don't jump on on her too much in the first few weeks. But what I can say is, give her a few weeks, and you'll see how much of a quality player we have here. Well, I think it's um, it's probably quite a good move for her that she's gone to the championship. That allows her to be in a position where she's going to be seen, but also have a little bit of an element of anonymity about it, where she can kind of go a little bit about it because let's face it the championship still doesn't get particularly fantastic coverage nationally um it's still very much national league or nothing um in a lot of the national press so um 
yeah, it could be a really good little place for her to kind of start getting her name about. Because I noticed that a lot of your clients tend to be sort of like sort of under 25. So what what other sort of like prospects you think, oh, have a look at this person, go give them a follow because uh, they're going to be doing big things in the near future. Oh, I hate this question because I always end up with loads of texts after saying, Reese, why have you not been? <laughs> um, but- well, tell you what, we've got, well, let's just kind of, you want to speed list through every single client. Have you got, have you got it all written down everywhere? So- I'll, still, I'll still forget one. Oh, uh, <laughs> honestly, there's a few that, that, that are coming up to very, very big seasons this year and, and, ones that we're we're very excited about so Ella Powell's just signed for Bristol City Simran Jama again a, a huge prospect we've got just signed Ella Hilliard who in my opinion in two years time will be a top 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 or three years time will be a top top Super League player um, Steph Hardy you know we, we might see Steph back at some point this season who knows um, Rio again goes without saying we've got Olivia Clark a Welsh international um, Sean again at Aston Villa I think it'd be, it'd be an interesting one with Hannah Hampton coming in but Sean, you cannot forget the quality that Sean Rogers has got. Only 18 months ago, statistically one of the best goalkeepers in England. Um, yeah, there's quite a few. I'll tell you, I'll make, I'll make life easier for you because for the for the benefit of all of your clients, Reese was about to say your name. I you know who you are. But I've, I've, I've cut him off, so that's my fault. So don't text him. It's me. It's my fault. He was going to say your name and you know it. You know who you are as well. Um, so just before we wrap it up then, I just kind of want your sort of like, opinions and predictions about the upcoming season within the WSL within the championship perhaps maybe um, any thoughts you might have on the Euros next year like how, how do you see it going the championship will be so entertaining next season because there's so many full-time teams you've got Palace you've got um, Lewis are going into a full-time model Coventry are up there now Sheffield United are always up there Durham's always up there Liverpool's investing even more um, London City again is still full-time but I think people forget about so I think out of the three leagues that is probably the one to watch. Um, a lot of people ask me who I think will be up there. It could be any of the full-time teams because on paper, they've all got quality teams. They've all got quality individuals within that team. Yeah, having one team go up and one team come down, that, that can't be sustainable for too much longer. It's restricting the growth. You you know, you've got you've got teams in the Super League. That two years ago, we had, we, had, we had several players in the National League that was on more money than players full-time in the Super League. Now, how can the FA allow that to happen? Um, but you've just said that one up, one down is not good for growth. It's restricting it. So the FA need to change up this season, I think. Um, hopefully the, FB, the WSL won't be two divisions within one. Hopefully it will be competitive. It, it will be, though. It, it, there's, there's, you look at it and it, it will be. There'll, there'll be a split from sixth up and sixth down. Yeah. Um, if a team can break through um, miraculously and sustain it, fantastic. But I, I can't see there being many that will overtake that will, you can predict the top six really can't you it's just a case of what order 100% and I think you can probably predict the bottom two or three as well just off the back of that um, but yeah I, I hopefully it won't be it won't be a case of where you know it's a 6-0 and then the week after it's a 7-0 and then the week after it's another 6-0 hopefully it'll be competitive because that's going to hinder people watching it on Sky Sports yeah. Otherwise, for me, that's when you start to bring in more teams. So you don't want to have two teams at the bottom that are basically thinking, right, if I beat the other team that's second, if I can get six points against the other team so within the bottom two, then I'm up. Absolutely. You, you just get more clubs up. So then, in a way, if you do have two leagues in one, at least you've got two competitive leagues where any team could realistically be at least 50% of the teams within their league. Yeah, absolutely. And you just thought... and maybe a few surprises, sorry to interrupt, maybe a few surprises. Uh, maybe it'd be nice to see Everton, Man United and Chelsea and Man City losing a game to the likes of uh, of Leicester because we've seen it in men's football. As much as I hate comparing it, um, you get teams that get promoted Quite often they'll 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 take the scalp of uh, Man United or Brentford beating Arsenal. Brentford, yeah. You look at Sheffield United in their first season two years ago. Um, I think just sort of going back to your question, I think Everton's going to be strong. I think I saw it on Twitter this morning, but did they beat Brighton six one yesterday in a friendly? Yeah, um, big statement. Big statement. So I think they're going to be strong. Leicester, I think again on paper they've got a very very strong squad. So I think they're going to they're going to cause a few upsets. But I just mm. hope it's not. I hope it's entertaining to watch because that's what the broadcasters want as well. Yeah, I think the one luxury I think you do have in women's football is goals. I think I can't remember the last nil-nil draw that I ever saw. So that's encouraging. And and that's what fans want at the end of the day. 
I um I went to watch Portsmouth yesterday. We won five one. I, I took a friend, one of my best friends from school. He's been a Portsmouth season ticket holder pretty much his whole sort of teenage and adult life. And I took him down, and he, and he really enjoyed it. He said, "Oh, it's you." He's like, being honest, you do lack a bit of bit of pace and power. I said, "Well, yeah, you might. There's a physiological difference there slightly, but you don't lose anything when it comes to technical ability and entertainment." And we don't go to football to see. Oh, I want to see who runs the fastest. We we watch the hundred meters for that. We go to football games to see goals, to see players playing together, working hard, and and building something. So, uh, I yeah, I think it's going to be really really exciting. And um, I, I I'm not a huge fan of Sky Sports in the way that they for me overdo it a little bit and over dramatize things and breaking news so and so sent a tweet and it can be a bit too much for me but as you said to their credit they do promote the hell out of their products and if WSL is their product they will promote it and there will be players that I will see more of that I don't see we we, we touched on a player before we started recording like I've been well aware of Lisa Evans but not well enough aware of her to know her, her real true talents. And, and when she makes a move to West Ham and I see, like, oh, actually, yes, yeah, when I think about it, yeah, she is as good because when you've got FA player and things like that, it all just tends to gravitate to Miedemar, 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 Harder, Kerr. And actually, these are team these are team games that these teams make a big difference. So, um, yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be really exciting. And I think... Yeah, I will learn about to the to the point that I will probably make a conscious effort to watch less men's football, so I can kind of free up time to watch the the women's football. Um, especially with that, as I said, touched on the fact that I've got an eighteen month old. The amount of free time I've got to watch football matches is uh, is minimal, and um, quite often it's in the evening as well. So maybe over the course of uh, the next year or so, we'll see more midweek uh, floodlit games for the WSL as well, because that's a uh, that's potentially. I know it's 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 not a prime time for getting bums on seats, but it's a prime time for getting eyes on it. And I guess that's going to be the difficult balance that the WSL have, have got to make to get those eyes and those bums. Absolutely, I would like to see the WSL on a Thursday night because I think there's not much on Sky Sports on a Thursday. I know there's a yeah. uh, the Europa League. I don't think that pulls in that many eyes, if I'm being honest, compared to the Champions League or the Premier League. Yeah. I would like to see more midweek matches, and I think that is that is a massive opportunity. Putting it on on a Sunday afternoon on Sky Sports, I don't think it's the wisest idea. But there is there is there is gaps and there is spaces midweek. Yeah, and it's always a real shame. I know it's a big big bugbear of a lot of fans when there's um, when you've got the men's team on a Sunday and the women's team on a Sunday. So maybe it's even just spreading out the games over the course of a weekend, like you do men's, and losing that traditional two pm kickoff uh, on the Sunday potentially. Well, not losing it completely, but having that flexibility that if you've got 10, 12 games, maybe you can you can share a few more around. Or maybe that's when you think, right, well, let's get Liverpool against uh, Bristol City on TV, but we'll put it on a Friday night. So we've got this spare women's football slot. Let's We haven't got WSL maybe, so let, let's, let's bring something else. But I'd like to see international weekends that... They think, right, well, we've got all these cameras and these paid staff. Let's let's go down to the National League. Let's televise that. Um, so hopefully we can, we can deal with that. But um, we're just about to hit the hour mark, and I'm, I'm mindful that we had about an hour before we actually hit the record button, and um, we've got plenty of bits to do. And, uh, and also we've got 15 minutes to go get the little one from nursery. So um, I'll, I'll kind of cut it off there and, again, just say thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I, I genuinely really enjoy talking to you. Every time I talk to you, I, I gain an uh, a new insight on uh, something behind the scenes in women's football and uh, it's, it's educational and you've got to be commended for the work you're doing. I, I, I know some of your clients, I speak to them um, and they genuinely adore the work that you do and they're, they're, they're grateful for the work you do. And um, some people might listen to this and think, well, this Reese is a bit arrogant saying his players have gone professional, but actually that's because of the hard work and trust you've put in and built with the, with your players that you've, uh, You've given them those basic needs to to thrive, and the, your players are doing that because too often it's uh, it's neglected and overlooked uh, by by uh, clubs and other management companies. No, absolutely, and um, I don't mind people calling me arrogant because at the end of the day, the facts that I've just said are, are, are true numbers, and if people want to call me arrogant for for speaking facts, then and it is what it is. But no, thank you for having me on.
where can everyone find you online? Because who knows, you might have, a, like I said, an odd player listening to it and thinks, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I might, I could do with that. Um, Next Gen Sports and Entertainment. I don't know the exact handles, but if you find us on Twitter, um, Instagram, message us through social media, www.nextgensport.co.uk. Um, and we aim to respond to everyone within 48 hours. Cool. Well, again, thanks a lot. You take care of yourself and um, you look forward to uh, catching up over the course of the season. Maybe if you get to get a game down on the South Coast, I'll uh, treat you for lunch. Perfect. Take care. Thank you. flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.